So I'll be uh, reading these passages, um, fairly long passages and weighty, but uh, we'll work through it together. So, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize, to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to, his, to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And this for the director of music on my stringed instruments. I will now read from Luke uh, chapter 22, um, beginning as uh, Jesus prays the Mount of Olives. So Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this message is for anybody who's ever hated an injustice, or seen an abuse and wanted it dealt with or handled properly. This message is for anybody who's felt all of that and at the same time wondered about the silence of God, the apparent silence of God. And this sermon is for anybody who has wanted traction in their relationship with God. Someone says, it's about having a relationship with God. I say, yeah, okay, what does that actually mean in how I actually relate, yeah? Is that you? Think of it as a Venn diagram. Injustice, science of God, wanting traction. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now. Um, in, in profound ways, perhaps new ways, in ways that help us in the darkness, in those dark moments, and um, 
Help us to know what to pray. And help us to know what to do. Lord Jesus, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your work. In our time, revive it. We pray this through your name. Amen. So the first thing you note about Habakkuk is that he's a confident prophet. He's got an unusual confidence. I think you will agree. He's very forthright with God, very direct. It's like he read fierce conversations and decided to give it a go with the Almighty. In chapter 3, on page 12, he feels sick to the stomach, waiting for evil to end. And then he concludes with these amazing words, confident words maybe, words of profound faith. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stores, yet, right, you get the point, no evidence of the good here and now, but even with no evidence, yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Now, I look at those two verses and think, I want me some of that. That's what I want. By the way, millions, millions have clung onto those words for thousands of years. Maybe you have, or maybe you will from tonight on. So how do you get that? How do you get such confidence in the face of pain and suffering and injustice and evil? Well, the answer is you need to know something about God, and you'll need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to show you that tonight. So we're nearing the end of our series on the not-so-minor prophets. Remember, the idea of this series is simple. It's on page one. One prophet each week for 12 weeks. We're in the back half. One idea from each prophet that points to one Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might together experience the one true God overall. Today we come to Habakkuk. I spent three years in America. Habakkuk. Now his contribution is unique among the prophets. Most of the minor prophets, it's a wall of sound preaching judgment on Judah or Israel or a nation surrounding them like we learned last week with Nahum with, um, with Nineveh. Habakkuk his contribution is that his prophecy is a prayer. Interaction happens between him and God. I mean, there's a message for the Judah and the nations, but the primary interaction is a prayer between him and God. So he doesn't pronounce judgment on Israel. Instead, he comes close to pronouncing judgment on God. (gasps) He's got God in the dock this time. You'll see that in a moment. He doesn't pronounce judgment, but he comes close. Habakkuk faces the problem of evil in, the, in his world um, in a way that will help you live in your world and me live in mine. And I get it, by the way. This morning at 8.30, I shoveled fecal matter just outside here, dug a hole in the garden, dropped it in, thoroughly washed my hands, and then, you know, 20 minutes later, divine service. Amazing, isn't it, you know? Uh, It's nothing, of course, but that's the world I live in. I live in that world. I don't live in any other world. And that's nothing, by the way. I mean, look at the injustices of the world. I'm just saying that's a picture of the world in which we live. The problem of evil is this. If there's an all-powerful and an all-good God, if both those things are true, then why does anything bad happen? 
If he's all-powerful, he can stop it. If he's all-good, he'd want to stop it, surely. So why can't he or why wouldn't he stop all that's wrong in the world? The problem of evil is a genuine problem. You go to university and get PhDs in the subject. The conclusion is that God must not be all-powerful, that is, he can't stop the evil, or he's not all-good, maybe he's malevolent, maybe he doesn't want to stop the evil, or he's not even there at all. People experience suffering, and when they do, they could go either way, by the way. Same people could experience the same suffering, and one person becomes stronger in God, the other person walks away from God. Some people walk away from God because of the problems of evil in their life, which is a understandable but ironic in some ways because the Bible does not avoid the issue. In fact, the whole Bible and the Bible as a whole, the narrative, is all about resolving the problem of evil. And Habakkuk is one of those books, like Job, that deals explicitly with the problem. That is Habakkuk's question that God, this is the inspired word of God, so God's inspiring the question. God is inspiring someone to question him. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. God is inspiring someone to question him. You notice that? If I can put it this way, this is not Islam. This is not Inshallah. Well, God wills it. This is God inspiring a person to fight with him about the injustices of the world. 1 verse 2, why God, are you not dealing with evil? Because you should. Now the Bible does not deal with this on an academic level, but on a personal level, we all experience pain. Emily Dickinson, pain. Pain has an element of blank. If you're not experiencing pain right now, you have in the past. If not in the past, you will in the future. It is inevitable. And if not you, then the person sitting next to you is. By the way, I've got no more truck anymore when someone says, I don't need God, my life is comfortable as it is. I'm like, is your head in the sand? What about the injustices of the world? My life is fine, I don't need God. Where did that come from? A Nigerian poet once said, my favorite quote, when suffering knocks at your door and you say that there's no seat for him, he tells you not to worry for he has brought his own stool. So how are we to relate to God when faced with the problem of evil? And I mean realistically. How does God expect me really to love him and serve him if I experience so much pain, whatever form that pain takes? A woman I knew, and I'm happy to say she was the rector's wife here a number of decades ago. She wrote a book under a pseudonym. Uh, she'd experienced some horrible things in her past. She's since gone to glory. Uh, and she said in the book that she would not or could not say during the Lord's Prayer, she couldn't say, deliver us from evil for a season. And the reason for that is because she thought it was a meaningless re request. Uh, she got through it. She wrote a book about it. But what does God expect from her? Well, in Habakkuk, you have an answer to this question. And in fact, we're given three things to do when faced with the problem of evil. And these are listed on page 14 of your zines. Three things to do. Number one, wrestle with God from chapter one. Number two, wait for God in chapter two. And thirdly, rely on God in chapter three. Nice of Habakkuk to be neat like that. So Habakkuk lived 600 years before Jesus. 
He looked around at the problem of evil in Judah, southern Israel, Jerusalem. He saw only bloodshed, lying, people mistreating each other. And so he speaks up to God. He doesn't say, the politics is all wrong, get involved in politics. He goes, okay, God, why aren't you doing something? So the first thing to do when faced with the problem of evil is to wrestle with God. This requires some traction. It requires being in touch with what you're feeling and being able to take the weight of what you're feeling and turn the weight of what you're feeling into genuine prayers to God. It's called crying out from the heart. He complains to God with a robustness that many of us seem to lack. Not afraid to speak his mind. So he says to God, famously, chapter 1, verse 1, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out violence, but you don't save, you're not acting. Why do you make me look at injustice, verse 3? Why do you tolerate wrong? Now, there are three questions, but they're not really questions. Now, questions is when you go, um, how long, O Lord? And he says, oh, about three weeks. And you go, good, I just had a question. And you answered it, thanks. I'll put a little note in my calendar with an alert. You know, bing. They're not questions, really. They are accusations. Um, I shouldn't have to call for help for this long. That's what he's doing here. In the middle of verse 3, he turns from questions to statements. To God in prayer, destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. The cops can't do anything. Justice never prevails. The court system is stuffed. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Now, it's not a stretch to say for those with open eyes that our world is mirrored in those verses. Even here, by the way, So he's saying in verses 1 to 4, I can see what's happening in Judah. If I were God, I'd do something. Here it is. I want to, but I can't. You can and you won't. There's the prayer. I want to. I can't. I'm a human. You, God, you can because you're divine and you won't. It's an unusual prayer. <laughs> How will God respond? Will he strike him down for his audacity? You know, if you look at the memes that mock Christianity and the social media, you know, there's God with a smite button. You can see God... Are you questioning me? Smart, 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 smart. But no, you got that's not our God. You've got this beautiful, gentle, weird, surprising, but insistent answer. He says, I'm going to deal with the evil. You know, you want me to deal with evil. I'll deal with evil in ways that the Israelites could not have imagined, even though it was right there in their Deuteronomic code. And God points this out. And by the way, if you say you've got a question for God, but you want him to answer it your way, you're in the wrong game, you're in the wrong business. You're coming up against the face of God, not up coming up against the face of your own desires and opinions. You know, you say, I've got a question for God. It's a total round hole, and I want him to give me a round peg. What happens if he gives you a square peg? You know, that's not the one I want. Well, maybe your hole was wrong in the first place. So he says, God says, uh, verse 5, here's the response. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Look what I'll do with international politics. I'm going to do something in your days you wouldn't believe even if you were told. Who knew that God is the originator of the phrase, you ain't going to believe this. I am, verse 6, raising up the Babylonians. It's like, oh, 
the Babylonians are the four the and the forebears of the current day Iraqis. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that then ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling dwellings not their own. Now this is specific then. Just because you see a war today doesn't mean the same thing is happening. It won't be the same thing. It really won't. But back then, for the purposes of leading us to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Christ, this is the word from God to Habakkuk. And the word is basically, you thought Judah was evil, you had a problem with Judah, wait till you see how I'll deal with the sin in Judah, I'll do something to you more horrible, square peg, to show Judah how seriously I take sin and there will be blood shed, there has to be, a violence in some form. I'm raising up a nation worse than Judah to punish Judah. Now, show of hands. Anyone think this is strange? Okay, five of you. Bless you, the rest of you. You're all at peace with God and happy and free and you're not really, you don't have to deal with too much. Oh, you're just just Anglicans, aren't you? It's strange. I'm embarrassed by it. By the way, God is in, he doesn't go, I'm raising up the Babylon. What do you say? Can you say that again? I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then verses 7 through 11, God himself describes the disgusting nature of that nation then. Feared and dreaded, verse 7, Lord of themselves. They, they, like, they act like they're God. So how will Habakkuk respond to this? What would your response be? By the way, that happened. Uh, 587 BC, the Babylonians came and flattened Jerusalem turned the turned Jerusalem into the car parking lot and destroyed the temple. This is all before that took place. Well, how will Habakkuk respond? Well, what would your response be? Um, well, he's a little bit more circumspect, a little bit more humble in chapter 1, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, we will not, will, you will never die. And then he gets back to it. <laughs> you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? Are you kidding? But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You taught me that. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. That's what you've said. So why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? There it is. While the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. And then verses 14 through 17, you've got a lovely picture of the problem of evil that we're just like fish in the sea. You know, no justice if you don't act. By the way, go to the... Great Barrier Reef and stand on a reef and put your head above water and look around and go, there's justice up here. I'll give you an example. Tour operator brings 30 out to the reef, leaves one on the reef, goes back. The courts will take the operators to, you know, they'll say, why weren't your systems in place and why did the person die and someone will get fined or put in prison or... There's justice. You move your head 10 centimetres... Zero justice with the fish in the sea. It's just dog eat dog, or rather fish eat fish. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's no courts, there's no cops, there's no, it's just whoever wins. And that's what Habakkuk says in verses 40. You, God, you've made people like fish in the sea, like a sea creature that have no ruler. In the end, might is right. Survival of the fittest is the only way. And the strongest person or nation becomes God. And, and Habakkuk saying, 
That's Babylon and that ain't right. It's wrong that death should win, is what he's saying. So first thing, which is my longest point, first thing you can do with the problem of evil and the apparent lack of activity as God is complain. In prayer, wrestle with him, struggle with him, ask him questions, put down your case, talk to him, tell him it, ain't, it shouldn't be so. Even if he's made promises for good. You know, Habakkuk knew there were promises for good. Some people might have a difficulty with this idea. You know, you've got an idea of God that doesn't allow it. But complaining doesn't mean you're whining, doesn't mean you're ungrateful. It might mean you're expressing real concerns and maybe for the first time, could be for the first time you're praying something very real and from the heart rather than something plastic. Some of us have a low view of complaining because of the way we were brought up, stricter homes. See, when a parent complains to a kid, it's called the truth. You never tidy your room. But when a kid responds, it's called disrespect. See the problem? You know, Habakkuk is like the kid to God. Parents can bring a list of faults to a child, but a child cannot easily bring a list of faults to a parent. Now, there's good reasons for that, I think you'd say. I mean, God has established an order of authority in the family. But it's not the complete picture, and any parent will tell you it's so. A parent who loves their child will never want to squash the feelings or thoughts or struggles of that child, particularly when the child has actually come to them. That's what's happening here with Habakkuk and God. That's why there's no smart button. And I think when we say nothing to God, we either go numb, inshallah, no traction with God, or worse, we grumble behind God's back and sort of we're out the door. Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian, wrote a lot about suffering, and he said this, for prayer, sighing, complaining, and crying out for God, and they're not religious performances. They are realistic expressions of the abyss into which people have fallen and to which they discover their own hearts. I find it interesting that the prophets and the psalmists didn't have a low view of complaining. They, you know, there's a bunch of cross-references there on page, on page uh, 14. They exhorted God to act. They made strong close to accusations. Um, even in the book of Revelation, there's like, how long, O Lord? You know, they pray the same prayer. I think Christians have every even more reason to be confident with God because we have the blood of Jesus covering us and yet many of us play, pray plastic prayers. Now some of you are biblical nerds and bless you too and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what about the Israelites? They complained in the desert and you know, God judged them for it. If you think that, go and read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26 where we read these words, they grumbled in their tents, so important. They grumbled in their tents, saying, God hates us. You see the difference? They didn't speak with God. They didn't have it out with God. They mumbled in private. They didn't cast their anxieties on God. They avoided God by spreading cynical remarks about him. Let's go back to Egypt. Note that Habakkuk is actually praying, and God blesses him for it. He's speaking up to God with faith, not mumbling in cynicism. Mumbling by, the, mumbling, by the way, is half a complaint. I'm done with mumbling with God. 
Prayer is different. And I've, there's been various periods of my life when this has been really real for me, when the idea of just holding on to a cliche doesn't work, uh, or praying some correct prayer, although there are some beautiful prayers in the past that were written that can really help you, but sort of guessing the mind of God. That's what Job's friends do. God has strong words to say about that. What Habakkuk has is an interactive faith in the real world, you know, where you have to clean up fecal matter. That's the world we live in. Now, if you never complain, of course, you may never receive an answer, not one that satisfies. So the first thing to do is be strong with God. He's big enough to cope. Be honest with him. He knows what you're thinking anyway. And if you do, you may get an answer. And Habakkuk does here in chapter 2, verse 1, lovely line. He says, I will stand at the watch, station myself at the ramparts. I'm putting my arms out like this, and I'm saying, I'm waiting to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. I'm expecting God. I want it, you know, bring it on. Then the Lord replied, again, gently, beautifully, and powerfully, he replied with the gospel. He said, write down the revelation, the thing I'm revealing, and make it plain on tablets. Chisel it out so that a herald may run with it. And I'm so thankful that happened because that's why you have it in your hands tonight. And what is the revelation, the thing God's revealing? What's the answer to the complaint? Chapter 2, verse 3, for the revelation awaits an appointed time in the future. It speaks of the end of this particular suffering, the end of Babylonian oppression. And it will not prove false. Though that end linger, though there's a season of darkness, you wait, it will certainly come and will not delay. So while the first thing is to wrestle, the second thing is to wait for God. He will right wrongs. He's just and loving and powerful. One day he will judge the world to stop wrong. That justice might roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. He will create or recreate a new world where there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or sadness. That's in Revelation, by the way, which is the answer to the question of those suffering in the book of Revelation. How long, O Lord? He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We said it a moment ago, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And this is good news, not bad news. Those in Christ can look forward to that, where injustices will end, where sin, all sin, will be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with in one way or another, either by receiving the just punishment for it, or by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're the only two paths for each sin. And that's because God does care, and I want to provide new thoughts next week from the book of Zephaniah about why God feels that way. He cares about the pain. He's holding back, in Habakkuk's case, for a time, so that Israel, for Judah, learns something. They would linger, wait for it. And God says in chapter 2, verse 4, though you might be blind for a moment, the righteous will live by faith. Now trust me to deal with the, the sin, with the problem my way, they'll allow me to have my square peg for the square hole that exists. He does care. And right here in the text, you get this promise with this woe upon woe upon woe. Babylon in chapter two, the evil will stop in two verse four, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How's that for a vision for our church as well as the world? Good news. 
But there's better news in the life of Jesus Christ because here's how Habakkuk's good news turns into Jesus' gospel. If, you've, if I've lost you, come back. Habakkuk is told, you think I'm not doing anything about sin. I am. I'll use the Babylonians to bring judgment on Jerusalem and there'll be blood. I'm gonna do something to you horrible to show Judah how seriously I take sin, but the death will end in a resurrection of sorts. It's my strange way of doing things. But Habakkuk, wait, for you'll see this is why. It's the only way you could call this God's strange work, his strange way of doing things. Martin Luther, the reformer of the, in the 16th century, called Jesus' death on the cross God's strange work. Because the death of Jesus is God dealing with sin in the strangest way. There was blood. There's a violent death there. But this time, this time, it's not one nation over another. It's not Babylonians decimating Judah, but rather, in fact, Judah decimating her own Messiah. And that's because all have sinned, God's people and those who are not of, of the family of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin always has to be dealt with. It's always messy. Blood has to be shed. And God shed his own blood in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's strange work. And you might say, square peg, my round hole. Why is God doing it this way? You could say, like raising the Babylonians, it sounds silly. But the cross of Jesus Christ will always be foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it's the power of God. Because it's God's way of telling me he's got a problem with sin. But his resurrection is his way of saying, I'm not leaving it there. Like he didn't leave the Babylonians to rule. Death will be defeated. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And in him I await the time when the earth will be filled with the Christ. Christ's glory as the waters cover the sea. So you wrestle and you wait for that day. And thirdly and finally, and I hope, obviously, you rely then on Jesus. You trust him, even when all evidence points against trusting him. And here's the, here's, this is so beautiful in chapter 3. After Habakkuk heard the gospel that the injustice will end of Babylon, he said, I heard and my heart pounded. I think we should have the same experience when hearing about Jesus. My lips quivered at the sound. Notice the holistic response. We're not just brains on sticks, you see. It's not just like, I figured it out. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. There's a sense in which my knees gave way. Now, there's you know, reason for here. We're talking about international politics then, not now. And so he said, I'll wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I'll, in the blindness, I'm hoping for someone, the Medes and the Persians, to, to do something about this other superpower. But I'll wait patiently for that. But in the meantime, there seems to be no evidence of the goodness of God. Now, you and I, I don't know how you feel, but I can see evidence of the goodness of God everywhere. It's like I open my eyes and it's like, grace, 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 grace. And for this, I thank God. But Habakkuk can say, though the fig tree does not bud. See, see what I'm saying? It's not, so there's a few buds on the fig tree. You know, I look at the few buds and I'm like, I rejoice in God. Though the fig tree does not bud. And there are no grapes on the vine. None at all. Throw me a 
freaking grape here, you know, just a grape. No grapes on the vine. So the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. You're like, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I rejoice in the Lord. How do you do that? Look at verse 17. Please look at it if you can. What's the most important word in verse 17? Can you see it? It's the word no. Everything else is a variable. Fig tree not bud. No grapes on the vine. No olive crop. Fields produce no food. No sheep in the pen. No cattle in the stalls. That's the, 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 the thing we're marking. Even with nothing. Yet I rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. In some church movements, they'll say that the evidence of the love of God is his blessing in material possessions. And everything I gain from God, I thank him for it. So that you see that and you say, look, see, God does love us. But not for Habakkuk. For Habakkuk, no grapes, no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle. Even with none of it, I'll still say God loves me. By the way, same for Jesus when he hung on the cross. Same for the Apostle Paul when he's being persecuted. Same for the recipients of the book of Revelation when they're facing the sword of the Roman Empire. I live by faith, therefore, not by sight. Though all earthly evidence to the contrary, I will still rejoice in God my Savior, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Nothing else, not the grapes, not the house, the holiday. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You can take that verse, verse 19, and let it be close to you in times of pain. Now notice those three things are things to do, not things to think. Wrestle, wait, and rely. So what kind of realistic faith can I have in a world of pain? What does God say to my predecessor's wife? Well, you've got it right here. Spurgeon once said, there's no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains. No prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul through deep trials and afflictions. Hence they bring us to God and we are happier or joyful for nearness to God is happiness. Then he says, come troubled believer, Fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are heralds of weightier mercies. Let's pray. And as we pray um, now, the musicians will come forward, and I think there'll be some people in the room for whom this sermon is unsatisfying and unsatisfactory uh, because of what you're experiencing, and it just feels unreal to you. And I want to say to you, um, if you want and if you feel safe, feel free to come and pray with somebody during this song. You really can do that. You might not want to, but you can. Let me pray. Uh, Father, Jesus went to that garden of Gethsemane and he prayed a, um, a remarkable prayer. He prayed, take this cup from me. He declared to you what he wanted. He was honest with you. I don't want to die. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. We say the same thing here today, but we do so without trying to be plastic. Um, we want to be real. 
cause this realness within us. May the, what comes from the depth of our soul give us, give us um, a new faith and a new relationship with you and traction. Um, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the answer to all our questions. We thank you in his name. Amen.